Sometimes we think of the Bible as this book just full of rules and regulations, but you got to know the Bible has a lot more to say about celebration than regulation. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, where God would speak to the people of Israel, and like we think of the book Leviticus that just has all these different instructions, within that book, there's instructions for how to party. In fact, there's 70 days in the calendar, over 70, that they were supposed to set aside just to celebrate, reflect, and party on what God has done, have feasts and festivals. And it's like God says, hey, after this happens or after certain things take place, you need to stop what you're doing and just take a mandatory vacation. How many of you believe in mandatory vacations? I didn't say, I didn't say vaccinations. That's a different sermon. But mandatory vacations, uh, I'm not going to ask that one. I'm trying to bring people together here. But you, I'm just saying you got to stop and celebrate. So it's with this idea in mind that we're going we're gonna to have some fun, learn what God would say to us. And this might even be a new perspective for some of you. I believe some of you, might, you might be coming in here and you've never thought of God in this way or, or thought of church in this way. But one thing you should know about our church is we like to have fun. I, I think church should be the most exciting day of the week. Because, see, when you come in here, you get your burdens lifted. When you come in here, you get filled with God's presence. When, when you come in this place, you get your eyes off your problems and your eyes on Jesus, who is bigger than your problems, and it changes your perspective. It brings things into perspective. So that's why we're so excited about God's house. We like to clap. We like to laugh. You can even talk back to me. I promise I won't throw you out. And uh, security? No, I'm just kidding. But um, with, with that in mind, I want to share some things that is going to be, I, I think, encouraging for many of you uh, who find yourself here today. And I don't know all the things that brought you here, but I do know this, that if you're in this room, God has a message for you. He wants to speak to you. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows what you're carrying. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you're dealing with. This is what happens every time we come into God's presence, every time we open up God's word, we see what he says. He speaks to our situation and we leave changed. And so... Uh, what we're going to look at today is maybe one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. Like, even if you're not a church person, even if you don't consider yourself a, a Bible person or a Christian, even if you've never read the Bible, I promise you, you've heard of this story before. And I, I use the word story intentionally because even though the Bible is factual and historical, what we're going to look at today is a parable. Probably the most famous parable in, in all of Scripture. If you want to follow along, you can go in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. And I always encourage our church to bring their Bibles with them. And, you know, I just figure, like, when I'm looking at this stuff, like, you might want to look at it too. And, no, I'm not making this up. I mean, I could just type anything I want on the screen. But how would you know? So when you bring your Bible, you can know that I'm telling you the truth. And if you don't have a Bible with you, here's a little pro tip. You can download a free one on your phone. This is how I read the Bible. I just go to Bible.com. You can do it right now. I'm not going to judge you. You can take out your phone and... And pull up a Bible and, and follow along this way, Bible.com. Just don't check your fantasy score or change your roster right now because God is watching and uh, that'll hurt my feelings. Some of you like the ESPN translations. Like, no, that's, that's wrong. But, um, but you can download the Bible on your phone. We're gonna, but we'll put the words on the screen, though, so we can all follow along together. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And it says this, to illustrate the point further... Jesus told them this story. Okay, i got to stop for just a minute. I know we just started, but, but we're jumping right into the middle of Jesus' sermon here. And I say sermon because I told you this is a parable, but see, Jesus' parables weren't illustrations. His sermons were the parable. The parables were the sermon. And 
I got to explain the context of what's happening because the whole reason he's even launching into this parable is because of something that happened at the beginning of the chapter. In Luke 15, verse 1, one thing you got to know about Jesus is people love to listen. All kinds of people love to listen to him, and especially people that wouldn't consider themselves religious people. They love to listen to Jesus. And it says in verse 1 of Luke 15, it says that tax collectors and other notorious sinners gathered around Jesus to hear what he had to say. So notorious, I mean, people knew what they did, all right? They had a reputation. And, uh, and they gathered around. This made the professional Christians, the, the professional religious people, it made them uneasy, made them a little judgmental, ruffled their feathers a little bit. Because, uh, you know, typically if you're like a church person, you didn't just associate with anybody. And, and so, so they got upset. And Jesus sees them getting upset. So in verse 3 it says, so Jesus told him this story. The whole reason he's going to speak in these parables is because of what's happening. Because he's got some irreligious people around him who love him. Can I just tell you, if you're here and maybe you don't even consider yourself a Christian, can I tell you you're welcome here? And you should feel comfortable here. Church, church people, people, people who were, were, didn't consider themselves church people, people who didn't consider themselves people of God, they love to be around Jesus. He, he made them feel comfortable. And so he launches into this trilogy of parables. He starts out with this. This one, he, he was actually giving parables in Luke chapter 14, talking about all these different parties, all these different feasts. I think that's why the sinners liked him. They're like, yeah, this is my kind of guy. And he, uh, he, he, he begins to, to go into this other story, he, this trilogy of parables. He talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. And then he talks about this one that we're going to look at today, a lost son. You, you probably heard of it before. It's called the prodigal son, often referred to it. And in Luke 15 verse 11, he says, to illustrate the point further, they weren't getting it. Jesus told them this story. It's another story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want to share, I want my share of your estate now before you die. That's a little bold. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. And he persuaded a local farmer there to hire him, and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, You know, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I am, dying of hunger. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home where my father's at. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And verse 20 says, so he returned home. I want to stop there for a minute. I'm curious, how many of you in this room consider Lawrence your home? Can I see your hand? Consider Lawrence home? About maybe half of you. You're from Lawrence. In fact, let's just play along a little bit. Uh, can I see your hand? How many consider Lawrence home? This is your hometown. All right, look, look for somebody who doesn't have their hand raised up. And just right now, you got my permission. Just ask them, where are you from? Where, where, where's home for you? You participate. We participate in churches. Just find somebody sitting next to you. Just say, hey, hey where, where is home? Where is, where is home? Be friendly. Where are you from? 
Okay, I said just ask them where they're from, not tell them your life story. All right, we got, we got a sermon to get to here. I, I'm never really sure how to answer that question. Where are you from? Where, where's home? It's an easy question. I wish I could answer it. But I, like, I never really had much of a hometown. Um, I was born in California. Uh, I grew up mostly in the Midwest. I say mostly because before the age of 19, I lived in three different countries other than America. I, I've lived a lot of different places. And so usually by the time I get done explaining that to them, they look at me just like you're looking at me right now, which is like, I don't really care. I was just being polite. All right, I really, <laughs> you could have just said you're from America. That would have worked. We don't really need to know the, the whole story. I don't, I don't know how to answer that question where you're from. And I've always been envious of people who could just be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm from Kansas or, you know, I'm, I'm from Nebraska or I'm, I'm from Kentucky. Actually, I've never been envious of anybody from Kentucky. But it's a basketball joke, all right? It's basketball. But I'm just trying to say there's something about home. And, and since, you know, we are in Kansas, I, I guess you could say, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. I, I want to speak to you for the next few minutes from this thought, there's no place like home. And I know it's kind of cheesy, but honestly, that's how I'm feeling in this moment. Like this is a, if you just allow me to be selfish for a minute, this, this is a special moment for me. This is our first Sunday in our new home. It just feels different. It feels different. You know, for, for, for as long as we've been a church, nearly 10 years now, we've never had a permanent home. And walking in here today and during the worship and just, you know, meeting so many of you and, and, and hugging so many of you, you know, knuckles and elbows, all that stuff, you know, from so many of you, it just feels different. And I don't know what you think of when you think of home, because I, I know, like, even in a room like this, there's... You know, lots of different people, lots of different backgrounds. I know there's lots of people when we talk about home, we think of a lot of different things. Like for some of you, when you think of home, you think of brokenness. For some of you, when I say the word home, it might bring up a memory of abuse. For some of you, when I say home, it might bring stress. There might even be people in this room who at one point in their life or even right now, have been without a home. And so I just want to recognize that when I say home, it brings up a lot of different feelings. So I need to define what I'm talking about because when I'm talking about a home, I'm not talking about where you grew up, okay? See, home isn't where you grew up. Home is where you belong. That's the first thing you need to know. See, when I, when I say home, home is a place of safety. Home is a place of comfort. Home is a place of security. Home is a place where there's joy. I'm just trying to help you understand what I mean when I say home because what you need, what you need to realize, home isn't always a former place, but it is always a familiar one. It's another way to put it. I mean, that's what this building is. This building is brand new. We've never been here before but we're already calling it home. Why? Because it's, it's familiar. It, just, it kind of feels like us. It's just got that, you know, velocity vibe. And 
that's what stuck out to me about this guy in our story because he has a home, but he can't wait to leave it. Let me just look at it again with you in verse 11. It says, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. He wasted no time in leaving. The moment he got, I'm out. I'm done. On to the next. He wasted no time because he longed for something foreign instead of what was familiar. Now, familiarity is not a bad thing. I mean, familiarity, it's a byproduct of intimacy. Familiarity isn't wrong in and of itself, but sometimes if we're not careful, familiarity will cause us to devalue the gifts that we have. It doesn't matter if it's a place. It doesn't matter if it's a person. Like I said, it's a byproduct of intimacy, but left unchecked, it can build indifference. It's nothing special. I, I know every nook and cranny. You know, I've been here. I'm used to it. It's common. That's what happened in this story. Because from the context, it doesn't seem like home is a bad place. In the little bit I read to you, we know a few things about his home. First of all, we know that he had a father. And he had a relationship with his father, apparently. I mean, feels comfortable enough to ask him for something that is his. So he's got a father. We know that the place must be fairly comfortable because the father has an inheritance to, to give to this son. Even later on, we find out, he says, one of my father's servants, they had servants in the house. It sounds like it could be a pretty cush life. But with all of this going on, he, he says, Dad, I want what's coming to me. I, I want what's mine. And I just want to point out, I don't think this prodigal son did anything that was wrong. Like sometimes I hear these sermons preached, it's like the, the prodigal son, they make him out to be incarnate evil. Like this guy just, you know, he wanted his dad to drop dead. I don't think that's what's going on. Because what we see, he asked his dad, the dad didn't object, didn't hesitate, didn't rebuff him, didn't have to think it over, didn't regret doing it. Says the dad agreed. You, you want what's yours? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Now maybe, you know, maybe we could say he was a little brash, a little foolish, a little impatient. You know, maybe he could use some more people skills, a little emotional, a little more emotional intelligence. But I, I, I just, I bring that up because I know a lot of people who have found themselves in similar situations as this guy. And I just want to be clear, it's not because he had bad intentions. He just made some bad decisions. So he says, Dad, give me what's coming. I want what's mine. Give me what's coming to me. And that's the scary thing about this story, is that the father gives him exactly what he asked for. Now, you got to understand a couple things about parables, because if you don't understand parables, you can't rightly understand Jesus, because nearly 40% of the recorded words of Jesus are parables. So anytime we read in Scripture and we see Jesus speaking these parables, there's a couple key things to understand. First and foremost, or primarily, when Jesus is given a parable, he's doing it to illustrate or, or, or reveal a factor of the character and nature of God or the kingdom of God. So this isn't like an all-exhaustive how-to-interpret-parables 
teaching, but I just want to say, in this context, Jesus is telling the story to help us understand how God wants a relationship with us. And the Father in this story represents God. That's the clearest, most basic understanding of this parable. So with that in mind, it communicates a couple things. God is not a withholding God. God is not up in heaven with his arms crossed, just, you know, waiting to see what you're going to do, you know, just withholding his love, withholding his blessing, just waiting on, you know, if you step out of line, no, I'm not going to, just wanting you to suffer. God is a good God. God is a giver. He's not withholding his blessing from your life. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is that when you want to go your own way, God will let you go your own way. And that's what makes this story a little scary. Because for anybody in the room who feels distant right now, and I don't know where you're at, but I mean, if we could just sit down and have a longer conversation, and there could be a lot of things going on in your life, maybe you've never been to church before, maybe you haven't been in a long time, maybe you've been coming to church right, but you still, you just feel a little distant in your heart. You're not as close as where you want to be. I wonder if we sat down and just had a longer conversation, if we discover that what you're feeling is really the result of what you've asked God for. God, just let me go my own, my own way. Just let me do my own thing. Because God will always let you go your own way. And it happens with the best intentions. I told you I lived a lot of different places. One of the places I lived uh, was on an island in the South Pacific. I lived there two different times in my life. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a surfer as long as I can remember. So I, uh, I remember I'd go out with my friends and I'd try to learn to surf. And I'm not even really that great of a swimmer, so it's kind of a bad idea. But... I'd be out with my friends, and, and we were out, you know, catching waves. And if you've never gone surfing, what surfing or bodyboarding, whatever you want to call it, like sometimes it's hard to find the pocket, like just the place where, where the waves are coming. And when you're out in the ocean, if you've ever done this before, it always looks like the bigger waves are someplace else. And so, like, you might just keep moving. It's like, if I can just get over there, just a little bit further, just get over there. And so I was out with my friends one time, and they, I don't know, had to go home. They were lame, something like that. So I just stayed out there. And was trying to catch these waves. She's like, oh, I got to get the bigger waves. Got to get out a little further. Got to get out a little further. I got to get out a little further. When before you know it, the current of the undertow had pulled me away nearly two miles from where I started. I already told you I'm not a good swimmer. Fortunately, it ended well. I'm here. So, <laughs> but you know, that same thing happens to most of us. I don't know anybody that intentionally sets out to sabotage their life to sabotage their spirituality. But what happens is you think, man, there's just something out there that if I can get to that, then it'll be a little better than where I'm at now. And if I can just get to that out there a little bit, it'll be better than where I'm at. I mean, just keep going a little bit, and we look up and wonder, how did I get all the way out here? I never intended to be this far. I never intended to find myself in this place, but here I am. That's what happens to this son. He, he sets out because he thinks there's something better out there than what he has here. And we'll pick up the story in verse 13. So after he packs everything up, sets out to a distant land. We don't know how long the time transpired, but it says he wasted all his money in wild living. 
wasted in the wild. I almost asked the question, how many of you ever been wasted in the, that's a different question. <laughs> he was wasted in the wild. And about the time the money ran out, a famine came, swept over the land. He began to starve. So he was spent, he was starved. Verse 15 is interesting. It says he persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Now, the way this reads in this translation, it almost sounds like, okay, he had a lot of money. He wasted it all. A famine came. So the guy, you know, put his skills to good use and he started to become a farmer. He went to work. That's not really what happened. And you can even see it because it says he was feeding the pigs, but he longed for what they had, but nobody gave him anything. He's not an employee for a farmer. He's not putting farm skills to use. Here's what's going on in this passage. It's actually a lot less pleasant. And I don't know if we have it on the screen, but I'll just give it to you from a different translation. It says, so he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He attached himself. Basically what he's saying is, if you can use this, as long as you keep me alive, what, it doesn't matter what it is. Just put me to use. I just need to stay alive. He attached himself. He joined himself to someone. So he spent, starved, and shackled. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this where you feel like your energy is spent. You got nothing left in the tank. Starved of anything that truly satisfies. Shackled to your current situation unable to change it. And it tells us why. It says he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. Meaning, this is not your home. You don't belong there. You might be there, but you don't belong there. You might be doing something. It might be what you're doing, but it's not what you were meant for. You don't belong there. And I wonder if I'm talking to anybody today who knows they're living someplace where they don't belong. It's not that the desires are wrong. Sometimes it's a pure desire, but you're trying to fill it the wrong way. Sometimes those desires in you are God-given. But anytime you try and fill a desire in a way that it wasn't designed to be fulfilled, you're going to end up in this situation. Now, some of the problems in our life isn't because we want something. Sometimes it's because we don't want enough. We'll, we'll settle for getting high when God wants to raise you above it all. We'll, we'll, we'll settle for shackling ourselves to a person for shelter instead of joining ourselves to the purpose of Jesus. I'm just trying to tell you, his, his desires weren't bad. His decisions were. It's a good desi desire, but a bad decision. And I want you to look where it left him. Left him hungry for something that he hated. Desiring something he despised. So you got to understand, like, okay, we can think 
feeding pigs, probably not a glamorous job for any of us, no offense to any pig farmers in here, but most of us probably, that's not what we're striving for. But this culture context would have been different. I mean, you just think whatever job there is out there that you feel would be degrading to you. you got that in your mind? Whatever job that is that you would be embarrassed about, that you would not want to tell anybody about, that you would hate going to work every day to do, whatever that job is. Okay, it's not just that it's degrading. This job in his mind is depraved. This job crosses his moral boundaries. Just in the culture of the day, this, this job, he finds himself doing something that is violating his morals. Have you ever found yourself there? Doing something you hate. Doing something that you know is wrong. But it feels like in the moment, that's what you have to do to survive. I'm just trying to talk to anybody who's ever felt like they're living someplace where they don't belong. And if you can relate to that, I've got good news for you. Because this could actually be the greatest moment of your life. Because it was in this moment where he says, why am I hungry for this? I don't like this. Why am I desiring something that is destroying me? It's in that moment that it says he came to his senses. The story shifts. He's looking at what he's doing and saying, this does not make sense. I'm doing this, but I don't like this. I'm craving this, but this is nasty. Why am I doing this? He came to his senses. And before you start thinking that this message is for other people, like with all the sins that you don't ever have to worry about, can I just tell you that there's a lot of us that are feeding appetites that leave us feeling empty. Just, I mean, how am I going to know who to hate if I don't, like, see what's on the news today? If I don't see what's going on, we're, we're feeding stuff. We've got to stay informed. We're feeding stuff that's leaving us feeling empty. And here's what I want to tell you. If you stay there, you'll starve. You can stay there searching for something that will satisfy. But if you stay there, you'll starve. So this guy, he comes to his senses. says, I need to go home. But before I can go home... Before he can come home, he has to come to his senses. Here's an interesting thing. I've heard this phrase before. Maybe you've heard it. You can never really go home. Have you ever heard that? You can never really go home. I get what people are saying. Like they're saying, you know, like if you leave home, once you go home, either things have changed or you've changed, so you can never really go home. And I get that. But I want to flip that for a minute. Because what I would want to tell you is that sometimes coming back, is moving forward. Sometimes coming back home is actually moving forward. Let me read this to you. It says, when he finally came to his senses, he's like, you know, what am I doing here? At home, we've got hired servants. We've got food enough to spare. I'm dying here. I'm going to go home to my father. He said, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. No longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So we returned home. I want to pick up the story here, but I got to give you a quick history lesson. Because 
sometimes you'll miss out on the significance if you don't understand the circumstance. It's like, you know, this building's pretty cool and I'm glad you're here, but like, it's different when you know the background. The, the blessing's always better when you know the background. And if I share this with you without giving you the context, you're gonna miss some of the meaning. And you see, in Jewish culture, one of the things you need to understand is that Jewish families lived in tiny villages that were tight-knit. So in this story, for this guy to just take off, have a fire sale on his dad's property, set out for a foreign land, the word would have got around. And then for him to have to come back, it wouldn't have been an easy thing because in Jewish culture, it was an honor culture. One of the worst things you could do was bring dishonor on yourself because by bringing dishonor on yourself, you would bring dishonor on your family. So in the Jewish culture, they, they, they came up with something and they, they came up with a way to basically excommunicate a family member that was dishonorable. This is not like a Bible thing. This was just a cultural thing. And this is what they would do. It's, it was called literally a ceremony of shame. It was a public shaming. The, the word for it in Hebrew is kazaza. Doesn't that just sound awesome? Let's just say it together, sound smart. Kazaza. Next time somebody offends you, just whip out the kazaza on them. It'll make you feel so much better. No, don't do that. There's a public shaming. This is what they would do. So, so when, when somebody was dishonorable, brought dishonor on the family, they wanted to disassociate themselves with them, they would have this ceremony, this public shaming. They would take typically a clay pot, smash it in front of them, at their feet, in front of everybody. Maybe take a basket or a barrel full of fruit, break it open, smash it at their feet in front of everybody. Symbolizing we're done with you. You're no longer part of the family. And there were two things that would trigger this, it wasn't for everything, it's not like just, you know, somebody, you know, like cuts you off in traffic, you're going to kazaza them. It's not like that. There were two things that would, that would trigger this. Typically, it was if a son would marry a foreigner that the family did not approve of, okay, bringing shame on the family, or a family member sold the family estate. Now think about this guy. He leaves town for a foreign land, wild living, and he sells the family estate to finance it. Well, now he knows. He knows what's waiting for him the moment he gets back. Kazaza. That's why he says he works out this speech. Dad, I know I'm not worthy to be your son. I've sinned. I'm, I've brought shame. So I know you're going to excommunicate me, but will you at least let me be a servant? That's what he's expecting. Now let's look at what happens here. In verse 20, it says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Can I just tell you, for anybody here today who feels far from God, you cannot be so far that God does not see you. You might be sitting on the back row right now because you were too scared to come to the front because you're so humiliated and ashamed of the things happening in your life. But can I tell you, God still sees you. Even in the moments where you felt the furthest from him, he still sees you. 
You can't be so far from God that he doesn't see you. And it says he saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. See, you think you might be coming to God today, but he's running to you. He ran to his son. He embraced him, kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, here comes the speech. I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father cuts him off. I don't want to hear the last part. He says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring on his finger. Get sandals on his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. And now he's returned to life. He was lost. But now he's found. And here's my favorite part. So the party began. So the party began. Here's what you need to know. Some of you who feel far from God today, that are ready to come home, God doesn't celebrate your shame. You're not gonna be shamed here. God doesn't celebrate your shame. He says, welcome home. If today is your day to come back to Jesus, you are not too far from God that he can't save you. you. You are not too dead that you can't come back to life. You're not too lost that you can't be found. See, what a lot of us wanna do is what this son wanted to do. Look, I, I know I'm not good enough for God. I know I've got stuff in my life. I know I've got things I'm ashamed of. So if I can just, I'll just do some good works. If I can just do some good stuff, that, that's all I wanna do, God. Just let me do some good stuff. I know I don't deserve it, just let me do good. God says, no. You're not going to be my servant. You're going to be my son. You're going to be part of the family. Welcome home.